this is Solom Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is a Solom podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Gregory Gansel on the podcast. Greg Gansel has been thinking about the intersection of Christian faith and contemporary scholarship for nearly 40 years. He began as an undergraduate by skipping his classes and reading C.S. Lewis. After graduating from the University of Maryland in 1978, he worked in campus ministry on a variety of campuses. Hundreds of conversations with students from a wide variety of religious and philosophical perspectives drove him to a sustained self-study program. Eventually it occurred to him that he was reading philosophy. Since he had escaped college without taking a philosophy course, he decided to begin with philosophy 101 at the age of 25. Within weeks, he was hooked. Continuing to juggle his full-time campus ministry responsibilities, he earned a Master of Arts in Philosophy from the University of Rhode Island in 1990. He then went full-time and earned his PhD from Syracuse University in 1995 where his dissertation on God's relation to time won a Syracuse University Dissertation Award. In addition to publishing nearly three dozen articles, chapters, and reviews, Greg has edited two books, God and Time, Four Views, published by IVP in 2001, and God and Time, Essays on the Divine Nature, Oxford University, 2002, with David M. Woodruff. Greg is also the author of Thinking About God, First Steps in Philosophy, published by IVP in 2004, A Reasonable God, Engaging the New Face of Atheism, published by Baylor University Press in 2009, and Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations, published by IVP in 2017. Greg was part-time lecturer in the philosophy department at Yale for nine years and a senior fellow at the Rivendell Institute at Yale. Currently, Greg serves as professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Greg's research interests lie in contemporary philosophy of religion and history of philosophy. Greg has been married to Jeannie since 1985. They have three children, none of whom are philosophers. Although happily married, Greg has a secret crush on Jane Austen. Don't we all? Yes. <laughs> More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his directory profile on Biola University's website if you want to find out more. So, Greg, welcome. And thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, honor to have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I'll disclose that I was a uh, Greg's student for a few years so you had the misfortune of reading my philosophy papers so um so i'm sorry to subject you to that but i'm glad you came on hey you did pretty well so no problem thanks all righty well why don't you uh, just tell us a bit about yourself namely how did you become a christian philosopher well um the short moderately short story is you know i grew up in a pretty strong family and we went to church and did that whole thing and as a 
I entered the teenage years, that became less and less relevant to me. I mean, I never really rejected um, the existence of God. I never really tampered with atheism very much. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty irrelevant as, as it is for many teenagers. And about halfway through high school, our family moved from Maryland to New Jersey. And I got involved in a youth group with a church, not even our own church. And, and it was there that, that I had peers and we began to talk about the Bible and talk about God in a way that uh, was open and seemed relevant. And so there was a whole series of things my, my junior year of high school. Um, about halfway through that time, I had kind of a, a profound experience uh, well, or realization that there was too much goodness in the world for, the, for it all to be an accident. Mm. And, and, and it, it was kind of a flash of insight for me. The, the, um, I thought God has to be real mm -hmm. and be closely in, involved with our lives. And, and so that was a big turning point. And a few weeks later, we were at a, our youth group went to a Billy Graham movie and, you know, I went forward and asked Christ into my life and that mm -hmm. uh, start me, started me on this journey. So I was 16. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a long time to become a philosopher as, as you know, my bio um, says, I should have known earlier that, that I was philosophical. I mean, it, the, in retrospect, even this insight that changed my life was actually a philosophical thought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the music I listened to, I listened to um, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, you know, I, I really resonated with thoughtful lyrics, things about the meaning of life. Um, mm -hmm. But it wasn't until later, because of my work in campus ministry, that I began to engage more systematically. And, mm -hmm. and I just started reading, you know, I first started reading Christian authors who were answering questions on mm -hmm. like the problem of evil, people like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and, and people like this. And then I got, you know, more and more um, involved in, in this reading program. And then I began to take classes. And sometimes I, the way I explain it to people is philosophy for some people is a little like heroin, right? You, if, if you dabble in it, you're going to get hooked and you might never get over it. And, and that's pretty much what happened. Not that I have any experience with heroin, but, you know, I watch TV and I know about it from that. So, <laughs> so I just gradually stumbled into philosophy and I felt like... Um, um, I had found my niche that I was, I was, it, it really fit the way that I thought. Hmm. And, um, and so when I, w I went on to do my master's, like you said, at the university of Rhode Island, because Jeannie and I were getting married, we were going to move to Rhode Island. We worked at Brown university and it was the closest place I could do a master's, but mm -hmm. I had no idea that there had been this Renaissance in Christian philosophy and, mm -hmm. And a handful of the professors there were Christians, and they were the ones who directed me towards the Society of Christian Philosophers and the work of people like Al Plantinga and Bill Alston. Mm -hmm. And they they directed me to Syracuse. You know, they had sent students there before, and so um, 
they they really took my chaotic, confused introduction to philosophy and and helped me refine it. So I'm really grateful to to the people at Rhode Island. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that um, uh, you you entered that that uh, the scene at the time you did. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it doesn't really seem to be very coordinated. It was pretty organic between uh, everybody, your contemporaries, and you entering the field at that at that time. Yeah, I think I think so. Now now I'm kind of a, a second generation in the in the Renaissance, what we call the Renaissance of Christian philosophy. The first generation were people like Plantinga and Walter Storff and Bill Austin. And, and, you know, they started writing, I mean, Plantinga and Walter Storff were Christians all the way through, committed Christians. And, and they started writing in the, in the late fifties, even in the early sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and Austin came back to faith in uh, the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah course all these people knew each other and there were more there were you know bob and marilyn adams who at the time were at ucla and george mavrodis at michigan Mm -hmm. Uh, most of these many of these people uh, you know are no longer with us um and so it really began to take off in the in the 70s Mm -hmm. and and i didn't start reading philosophy i mean i didn't start my my um masters until 1985 so so Mm -hmm. i was a decade later um but i benefited from these pioneers and then of course bill austin was my um thesis advisor at syracuse oh really okay and and it was a real privilege to work with him Mm -hmm. so so i don't feel like i'm part of the renaissance i I, i'm I'm more like riding the wave (laughs) that others generated would you consider E.J. Carnell as part of the uh, part of the beginning of it? That's a good question. You know, I don't know much about Carnell. Um, he was, um, geez, let me think about Carnell. He was at Trinity Seminary, or I might be confused. No, I'm confusing that with someone else. Car- was he part of the Fuller Seminary group? To be, on, um, to be honest, I'm not sure. He might have been Wheaton, but that's just a guess. Yeah. So there were people like Carnell, Arthur Holmes was at Wheaton. Okay. Um, and and so there were people lurking around. Most of them were in seminaries or Christian institutions. Carl Henry, who was part of founding um, um, Fuller Seminary, he mm-hmm. had a degree in philosophy. Um, but it, it really... He wasn't, I mean, it, this happened gradually, but it, but it was when there was a convergence with Plantago, Walter Storff, Arthur Holmes was part of it, um, Mavrodis, because these people, even though Walter Storff and Plantago were at Calvin College for many years as faculty, mm-hmm. they also went there as undergraduates, mm-hmm. um, they were publishing in the top academic journals. And so they they weren't writing for the church. They were they they were writing for the academic community, and and that was a fulcrum that really launched um, a different phase in mm. um, Christian academic philosophy. Um, I see. I think people like Carnell and even Carl Henry, 
who wrote good work um, were mostly writing within the Christian community. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good distinction. Um, so the, the second wave, um, would you kind of include yourself among the group that like uh, consists of uh, Douglas Guyvet or uh, did, did Moreland kind of get his start in the 80s too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Moreland started with uh, Campus Ministry too, with Crew, right. Campus Crusade, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was years ahead of me and was very helpful along the way, right? I mm-hmm. had several conversations with him mm-hmm. um, as I was navigating my course. And and Doug Guyvet, and of course, these guys are here at Talbot. There, there's a, if we want to if I label myself kind of second generation, um, it's a very large second generation of scholars mm-hmm. um, that, that were attracted to philosophy as Christians because of the work of the first generation. And, mm-hmm. and, and the first generation, you know, a lot of these people came out of the really good Christian colleges, Wheaton and Calvin that were very strong in philosophy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but there were, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't estimate. I think there were hundreds in the second generation, right? And, mm. you know, depending on how you cut generations, you know, I might actually be third, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But we really benefited. So there were, when the Society of Christian Philosophers were formed in 1978, Mm-hmm. Um, it grew very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and I joined in about 1987 when I was halfway through my master's. Um, and by that time, I think there were almost 800 or a thousand members. Wow. And, and so we would go to the conferences and at the conferences, normally the keynote speakers were these first generation people, people like mm-hmm. Nick and Al and, Bill and Marilyn and um, and and it was it was inspiring for us. I remember going to a conference. It was three weeks after my middle son was born, so I only went for part of it because we had an infant. Mm-hmm. Um, called the Future of God conference up at up at Gordon College. We were living in Rhode Island, and uh, Dean Zimmerman and I. Dean was a was a graduate student at Brown, and we were in a Bible study together and. And we drove up to this conference and that was the first time I met all these people. Eleanor Stump was there, Marilyn Adams. I sat down with Marilyn for like an hour to talk about graduate school. She was so gracious. Um, and Norman Kretzman from Cornell. And, but there had to be a hundred people at the conference. Wow. Uh, and, and a lot were people like me that were in master's programs aspiring to do PhD. Some of them were doctoral students. Um, and, and this kind of thing was happening a lot. Yeah. So as far as I was concerned, it was kind of mesmerizing that this was happening. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, the, con- the convergence of all that, I, I wonder if there haven't been more in the past um, who may, may have been uh, more isolated because they didn't have the, uh, the resources that we do today. Um, I think that's right. I think th- this is what people have, have reported 
when when they decided to form the Society of Christian Philosophers, they made an announcement at the American Philosophical Association, and they expected maybe a dozen or two to show up to the first meeting and 80 philosophers showed up that, that were interested. Now the, now, the Society of Christian Philosophers is very broadly Christian. Anyone who identifies as a Christian can be a member. It's, it doesn't have a, um, a doctrinal statement beyond that. And, okay. and that, that has been helpful to the mission of the society because it's a pretty big tent. And um, so, so I think what, what, what the founding people discovered was that there were more people that were isolated and, and it became really important to be able to have conversations with fellow Christians and fellow theists where you didn't have to defend your first prin principles all the time. You, you could move on and do other things. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the great stories mm -hmm. in Christian academia in, in the 20th century. Definitely. Um, now, when you were, when you were starting, um, did uh, did the Evangelical Philosophical Society start around that time, or was that? That's a really interesting question. Okay, so the Evangelical Philosophical Society actually began before the Society of Christian Philosophers. It was oh. in 1974. Wow. And it, it was a, um, I don't know the technical term, like a subgroup of the Evangelical Theological Society. Oh, okay. And so, so what happened was at the Evangelical Theological Society meetings, they would have kind of a, a slot of meetings for the philosophers, and it was called the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, that went along. They began to publish the, the bulletin of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and, um, and, and that was... I don't know if it was peer reviewed from the very beginning, it might have been, but it, it was really an in-house journal. Mm -hmm. um, and then somewhere around, it, it must've been when I was in my doctoral program in the early nineties, some of, some of the philosophers like Bill Craig and JP Moreland and Doug Guyvet and and some of the ones, the guys at Liberty, like Gary Habermas, and and that were part of this, they they decided to reconstitute the society, and they said, mm -hmm. let's make this a serious philosophical society. Let's let's completely overhaul the journal and make it a real academic journal. And this mm -hmm. began in the early '90s, and Craig Hazen was appointed the editor of the journal. He directs the apologetics program here at Biola. Um, Bill was the first president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society of this new um, um, reinstitution, so to speak, uh, reconfiguration. And, and it became a, a, a visionary thing for people who were um, evangelicals and, philo and philosophical. And now it's probably the largest group connected with the Evangelical Theological Society. We still meet with them. We also have separate conferences, regional conferences and things like that. I've been fairly involved 
with the mm -hmm. Evangelical Philosophical Society. Now, there's a great deal of overlap in the membership between that and the Society of Christian Philosophers, just like there's an American Catholic Philosophical Association, and there's a mm -hmm. lot of overlap between that and the Society of Christian Philosophers. Mm -hmm. and so these are not silos. They are, they're, they're kind of different um, societies with different kinds of um, emphases. Mm -hmm. So Phil Christie, the journal has become, you know, one of the significant philosophy of religion journals in the academic world. Um, right. pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, I know, I know you said that you, um, you, you didn't have m much of an idea that this movement around you was, was happening until you got to the uh, Christian Philosophical Society. Yeah. But when you um, when you first met your your colleagues, mm -hmm. did did you kind of get get a sense that wow, I'm a part of something a lot a lot bigger than I that I thought I was getting into? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I remember I remember um, at Rhode Island, um, the professor I worked most with, Don Zile. He became my thesis advisor. He's a a Plato scholar. Mm -hmm. um, in fact. Uh, his wife is a Biola alum, <laughs> and um, but but he we met in his office one time, and he just started pulling books off the shelf and saying, you know, you've got to know this guy, you've got to know this guy, look at all this stuff that's happening, and mm -hmm. and he, even though he his most of his scholarly work is on Plato, he um, was very interested in philosophy of religion, so mm -hmm. we did an independent study on planting us epistemology the is belief in God properly basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so he really oriented me to the analytic philosophy of religion. I mean, I kind of went into philosophy much, much more. I didn't know the difference between analytic and continental philosophy. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but I was very interested in existentialism because of the question of meaning without God. And, and I'm, I'm kind of coming around to the question again, mm -hmm. which is why we did the Nietzsche class. Yeah. And, um, um, but I didn't know anything about what analytic philosophy was. And so mm -hmm. Don got me up to speed. You know, I ordered all these books and, and started reading these guys and, and, um, you know, it was like, it was like Christmas for, you know, yeah, I bet. unwrapping all these presents under yeah. the tree. Right. And, and I'm just so grateful for faithful people who, who blazed a trail um, mm -hmm. for the rest of us. Exactly. I am too. Um, yeah. This, this is, it, it couldn't have come at a better time really mm -hmm. um, with uh, I, I think we began to shift away in the universities from, from, uh, Christianity or Christian assumptions philosophically, I think back in the thirties, if I, if I remember right, maybe even earlier than that. Yeah, I think it's much earlier. Um, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous book that came out in 92 or 93 by the historian George Marsden called mm -hmm. the soul of the American university. It's a history of secularization of the university and Mars mm -hmm. Marsden you know, was a Calvin guy, he's a historian. And so he hung out with all these philosophers and um, um, he's written some very important work. And, and, and this book traces 
how the universities in America became secularized. And, and it's a very complicated story. And a lot of the influencing factors are things that, that we are in favor of, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's not all, um, it's hardly a conspiracy or anything like that. You know, as, as the country becomes more diverse religiously, the universities had to say, well, we, we're going to let anyone in our university, right? You don't have to be Protestant. The, the mm -hmm. universities like Harvard and Yale were, were distinctly Protestant at the time because Catholics had a very little presence in the colonies when these schools were founded. Right. But as that began to grow and as specialization of knowledge began to happen, which really exploded in the 19th century, um, you needed scholars in particular fields. You needed a geologist. Mm -hmm. Normally, the faculty, I mean, in the early part, the faculty were clergy. The clergy were the best educated people, but they were educated classic education. Mm -hmm. They weren't specialists like geology or math or these kinds of things. And so there are all these factors. It's, it's a great read. Um, yeah. Yeah, could you repeat the title for us? Called The Soul of the American University. It's Oxford okay. University Press, George Marsden, M-A-R-S-D-E-N. And mm -hmm. um, I think it was published in 92 or 93. Um, okay. But I, I, I make my students read this in my doctor of ministry seminars <laughs> because they, they need to know that Sometimes we tell the story like we had these great Christian universities and then secular people stole them from us, but it really was more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, Bill Craig has called it a retreat from the university as opposed to, yes, I don't know, some, some like conspiracy or takeover or something. No. And I think that's right. It's a good word. Uh, uh, what Bill says about a retreat, that is a pretty accurate picture of what the church did in re response to a lot of these trends. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. We started Bible colleges and things like this. And of course, you know, I teach at Biola. I'm happy to have a Bible college um, or a Christian university. But um, there, they, we became generally pretty siloed, if mm -hmm. I turn that into a... a uh, um, a verb, so to speak. We, 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 we tended to isolate right. ourselves and tried to focus on piety and some, and for some good reasons, but some of the unfortunate side effects is by the time the thirties come around, there were very few serious Christians in the influential universities mm -hmm. doing scholarship in a Christian way. Um, you could count the philosophers who were publicly known to be Christians probably on one hand. Um, now, I'm, I'm excluding those teaching in the Catholic universities as well, because they, they had a pretty strong philosophy tradition um, all through the 20th century. And some of, some of the great research into medieval philosophy emerged in those universities. Right, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've wrestled with um, 
exactly how we how we go about navigating our culture now because obviously i mean there are things going on in in the university today that we christians i mean we 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 can't uh tolerate i mean i don't think i don't think we should send our kids kids there a Mm -hmm. a lot of the time um so i i wonder like if this push for us and i know that there needs to be some resurgence at the university level of, of Christians, of thinking yeah. Christians. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there isn't also merit to the idea that we kind of cloister mm-hmm. in a way to, to a degree. Uh, what would you yeah. say to that? Well, I think, it, I think you're right. I think it's a both and, right? You know, each, there are, there are lots of paths and, and if you, we pick a path, it's not going to be right for every, student or every teacher mm-hmm. um i so on the one hand i i would be against saying we shouldn't have distinctly christian institutions because the distinctly christian institutions serve uh, a role that um would be lost mm-hmm. if every christian academic and every christian student was navigating the secular academy at the same time you know i i would resist thinking christian students shouldn't go to secular universities and christian academics shouldn't inhabit those places um i think the secular colleges can be very tricky um for students faith right because you know a, a a Christian student coming out of high school is is mostly seriously ill-prepared to navigate the environment. And this is the advantage. I mean, here's something I'd like to bang the drum about. This is the advantage of the parachurch ministries at the universities, mm-hmm. crew and university, um, because you show up and you get into a community of Christians that are have already been there navigating the complexities right and and it and you know if a if if a student in the first six weeks of freshman year does not connect with one of these groups the odds are not very good for them maintaining a robust faith through college first six weeks are crucial Mm -hmm. if a student does then the odds are much better Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just, you know, I was yeah. 36 years with crew and I saw it all the time. Um, right. um, so, so there are, there are, are resources to help navigate these kinds of things. And the biggest resource is the community in the parachurch groups. It's mm-hmm. very rare that a student's involvement in a local church will be enough for them. I think they must get involved in a local church, but but you've got to be involved in a campus ministry where, where you're seeing these people all the time and you can bring the complex questions to right. the staff or the more mature students. Um, and, and, um, and, and something analogous is going to be true for faculty. You've got to, you've got to find a cadre of believers that, are, that share your mission. Um, otherwise, your mission—it's very easy for it to get diluted. 
Exactly. Um, now, do you think that parachurch ministries on these campuses like crew or the Baptist collegiate ministries around here, mm -hmm. um, do you think that they've done a good job at, uh, at developing their philosophical knowledge and apologetics or do you think there's more to be done or what would you say? Well, well, it, it, it's hard to generalize and there's always more to be done. Um, I, I think in general, the answer is yes. I, I think a lot of these ministries have a much more accurate picture of the role of apologetics in the ministry than the professional apologists do <laughs> because the, I mean, and okay. Um, this might put some people off, <laughs> but, but there are people who think that apologetics is the answer to all of these things. Mm -hmm. And, and in my experience, it's, it's very helpful. I'm a big fan of apologetics, um, mm -hmm. but it's not the answer. It's, okay. it's, it's actually a, a student's faith depends much more, not a little more, but much more on that student's encounter with Jesus on a daily basis. You know, if a, if a student has a vibrant experience with God through the scriptures, through the church, through the community, and is sharing um, her faith with um, fellow students, that is going to be much more important than having a lot of knowledge of apologetics. Now, right. knowledge of apologetics is really helpful in the evangelistic process mm -hmm. and to wrestle with hard questions. And so I, I think, I mean, my experience with crew is most of the staff on these campuses um, have a pretty good handle on these things. And even if they're not very interested in apologetics, they know how to point students to things. Um, so of course there's, there's all kinds of room for improvement and, and in all of these ministries. But, but, I, but I think, you know, it's the room for improvement area is much broader than just apologetics. Okay. Um, well, why don't you say a little bit more about that? Um, what exactly would you say would help us? Well, well, I think one of the, one of the, and I'm finding this here at Biola. So I, I teach an undergraduate class called the gospel, gospel kingdom and culture. And I realized that, that our students, these are juniors, mostly, they don't know how to think theologically. So if we think, okay, how do we think theologically about work? They're going to pull out the verse in Colossians, whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord. And, um, and that's a good place to start. But, it's a, but, but they don't know how to think about the Christian, the arc of the Christian story from creation to the incarnation and redemption to the new heavens and the new earth and trace a theme like work. Where does work fit into this, you know, in the cultural mandate in Genesis one um, and how that gets developed. Um, so this is something I'm, be I'm becoming more and more convinced of that, that we need to help um, people think 
deeply and richly theologically about everything, not just about theological topics. Mm-hmm. So, so I have my students do a, an assignment. It's a short you know, paper, 300 words, a theology of knowledge. Give me a theology of knowledge. And, and mm-hmm. I make sure that I say, I don't want you to talk about knowing God. I want to, you to talk about knowing things in the world, like trees. What's your theology of knowledge? Because if, if we don't have a theology of knowledge, then we don't have a foundation. Knowledge is one of one of the um, perennial locations of cultural movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw this. I mean, you could you you could almost trace the history of philosophy around the theme of what do we think knowledge is and is it possible? Um, and um, and and so I'm more I'm more and more inclined to think that this is crucial. Um, on, on one hand, you you could translate what I'm saying into worldview language. What mm-hmm. is our worldview about work? What is our worldview mm-hmm. about knowledge? Um, but but I I prefer the language of thinking theologically because hmm. they don't hear it as often. Right. Um, and, and this is going to be important. So, so let's, say, let's say you're working in campus ministry at um, Arizona State University, big, big school. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you equip undergraduates in such a way that 10 years later, when they're working in some insurance agency, they can think Christianly about their work. We have to help them do more than just look up key Bible verses. We need a deeper, richer. So I don't mean the academic study of theology, although that could be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, okay, how do we think theologically? So that's one theme I think is really important. Okay. Yeah, that, that that's very good. That does give us some direction as to how to navigate uh, being in ministry on, on a very secular campus. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll say too that the, uh, the the pushback, the philosophical pushback, uh, you know, during this this Renaissance and um, the second wave, as as you were part of, uh, was 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 very very crucial. Um, mm. I, I I've heard it said that um, culture is usually about fifty years behind academia. Um, and I, I don't know if I actually agree with that. I think it might be about a hundred. Um, so hopefully within the next 50 years, uh, we're going to feel the cultural effects of what you guys have been working on. Yeah, well, that's an interesting comment. I want to think about that. I, I think, um, let's call that the time lag, culture okay. is behind the academy. I uh-huh. think the time lag is shrinking dramatically. Good. Because you you, th- you think about you, you think about some of the themes that became really hot philosophically, maybe start with hints in the '60s, but moving into the '70s and '80s. So mm-hmm. on the analytic side of philosophy, for example, you get the anti-realists, people like Hillary Putnam that are are you know. What's true is relative to a conceptual scheme. 
their conceptual scheme relativists, or or Richard Rorty, and they're both kind of pragmatists. I mean, Rorty's very happy to be called a pragmatist. Um, and on the continental side is people like Foucault that 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 talk about you know there is no knowledge that's that's not also a power move, right? That the, mm. Well, that, is, that has taken very little time to trickle down. Right. That, that is kind of what high school students are being taught. You know, that, that all of these things are conceptually relative or culturally relative. And, and there is no privileged, the way Putnam says it, there's no God's eye point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, for him, it's because he didn't think there was a God. Um, mm -hmm. But um, um, so I so I'm not sure when it when it comes to the the big worldview kinds of things like what is knowledge, what what is meaning, and this kind of stuff. I'm not sure we're culture is 50 years behind anymore. It goes really. It seems really fast to me. Okay. I think there is some kind of lag. Um, but it's really worth thinking about, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I have to give that some more thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, then I'm I'm happy uh, because that means that you're affecting more cultural change quicker. Um, and that was actually what I was going to ask you next: is um, mm -hmm. do you, do you think that the Renaissance that you've been a part of, um, this multi generational Renaissance, uh, has had cultural effect as of yet? That's a really hard question. I mean, I should say it this way. That's a really good question. Um, in some ways, no. Okay. Um, what trickles down from the culture-shaping institutions tends to be pretty much a practical atheism. Atheism is considered neutral mm -hmm. in, in our general culture, right? And... And and of course we've got we've got an increasingly polarized um, culture on many issues. Um, there's one area where I think there has been some cultural influence, and it doesn't come only from the Renaissance of Christian philosophy, but I think the Renaissance of Christian philosophy has helped contribute, mm -hmm. and that is the area of virtue. Mm. There, mm -hmm. there has been, I mean, in academic philosophy, as you know, there's been um, a resurgence of virtue ethics and now virtue epistemology. And, um, and it began, you know, people pinpointed to 1958 when Elizabeth Anscombe published her paper on modern moral philosophy and, and um, kind of pointed towards the virtue tradition coming out of Aristotle specifically and as as um, appropriated in the Christian tradition and the other religious tra traditions and, and of course you know here Dave Horner is is all over this stuff right. but but so more and more Christian thinkers have been doing their work on ethics in a virtue framework. Mm -hmm. And and this has started to get some cultural traction. One of the big instigators, and, and I'm not sure the degree to which the, these people are influenced by 
Christian philosophers, although I know there's been a lot of interchange, is the Templeton Foundation has mm -hmm. funded a lot of research on virtues. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of philosophers are getting grants on to do a three-year collaborative study on humility, for example. I mean, a friend of mine I went to grad school, he's not a believer. He's mm -hmm. got one of these grants to study humility. And, and, and they've really funded a lot of important work so that the conversations about virtue are, are pretty big in the academic community and they tend mm -hmm. to trickle out. You, you, you see it in television commercials where, where there's the, the, the advertisements are not just, in a sense, crassly utilitarian. They're trying to tie this to meaning and to uh, a robust life, uh, mm -hmm. flourishing, the soul. These kinds of concepts are talked about more. So I, I think that's a, a place where there's been a lot of um, development. I wouldn't want to say it's just the analytic Christian philosophers who, who launched this. I mean, mm -hmm. um, but I think the Christian philosophers have been part of it. It's been picked up in psychology. And, and I, again, I don't want to say it's the mm -hmm. philosophers who influenced what they call positive psychology, mm -hmm. where researchers... I don't know where this came from because I don't know psychology, but someone noticed when we study psychology, we study all the problems. Why don't we study what a healthy person is like? <laughs> and that's called positive psychology. So the psychologists are working on things like flourishing, well-being, contentment. And, mm -hmm. and this has been tremendously fruitful. So, so I think these are very strategic concepts. And the mm -hmm. more they play in our culture, the, the more um, hungry people will be for a, a seriously rich worldview. Right. And, and some of the alternatives will be more clearly anemic. Right. So, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think among philosophers, there's certainly more respect for Christian philosophers now than there was 50 years ago. Definitely. But there, you know, academics have all the prejudices of normal human beings and there's still that, that goes on. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I noticed as you were talking about that, that e even though we have lost our, um, well, in the culture, they, they deem our metaphysical assumptions as Christians pretty implausible. Right. They sure are obsessed with ethics, um, yeah. e even though they might be naturalists. Um, so do you think that ethics would be more fundamental than things like epistemology or oh. metaphysics or, yeah. Good question. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think, um, Again, when it, when it comes to the structure of reality, I think metaphysics is most found fundamental. Okay. And um, um, and metaphysics broadly construed, right? As of course, including the existence and nature of God. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to um, 
that you could call that the order of being. But when it comes to the order of knowledge or the order of strategy, I think ethics couldn't be on the top um, or more fundamental because people are so concerned with it. You know, the average person is not concerned with metaphysics. And as soon as the conversation gets tough, it's easy to say, yeah, but this is all, we're just, you know, this is all just blabber. Yeah. And, but when it comes to ethics, broadly speaking, you know, including, including virtue and including human flourishing, people deeply care about this. So, Mm -hmm. so it, it can be the best front door for people to, start thinking philosophically or start mm-hmm. thinking theologically because right. I mean, so if I, if I'm in a conversation with someone on an airplane and I try to give them the Kalam cosmological argument, almost for sure the person's not going to care. But if I begin to, if I am, I'm able to have a conversation in which a person sees, you know, I have kind of a vision of what human flourishing is like, and and I haven't really thought about what that says about reality. Mm -hmm. It's harder for that person to dismiss the tension. I mean, so what, what, what we're trying to do in communication, whether, whether we're, you know, doing something Christians do like evangelism or, 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 any kind of persuasion you're writing an academic paper is we're trying to raise attention in a, in a, in a person's belief structure. Say, so look, this, you believe this, it seems like you ought to believe this. Mm-hmm. Now, if the first thing is easy to, to dismiss, then it's easy not to be persuaded. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I say to you, well, you believe that that you can't complete an actual infinite series by successive addition. Therefore, the universe had a beginning. You can say, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> right? But if it's like a robust vision of human flourishing, mm-hmm. that's harder to, to give up. And so, so right. we're in a sense, we're trying to help people feel an existential tension that tracks maybe what we could call a cognitive tension in their worldview. Mm-hmm. Or a person says, look, it's important to be the, the right kind of person, yet I don't think there's any purpose in the universe. You think, mm-hmm. okay, there's a tension in their worldview. Mm-hmm. I want them to experience that tension right. and, and be motivated to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, yeah. so, yeah, so it, it, when it comes to the order of reality, I think metaphysics is foundational. But when it comes to what what are the best premises to work from both in an individual conversation and in cultural work i think um the vision of the good mm-hmm. and you know ethics broadly construed not just right. which actions are right and wrong something broader than that are the best is the best place to start right yeah and i think that that's the way that the ancient philosophers uh kind of structured their well their um uh, their concerns and what exactly they yeah. studied. So a lot of them. And, yeah. Yeah. Ho- hopefully we can kind of make our way back to that and not just focus um, too yeah. much on uh, more abstract, you know, disciplines and philosophy. Right.